Isaiah chapter 1, please. Happy Father's Day. I asked my four-year-old, I said, Luke, what's a daddy? He said, he loves me. I like it. The goal today is to finish the introduction and try to dive in and actually get into the book of Isaiah. Let's see if we can get there. Let's read a few verses to get started, please. Isaiah chapter 1. It says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation. People weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again? As you continue in your rebellion, the whole head is sick. And the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers, are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation. As overthrown by strangers, the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hunt in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we'd be like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you today, and Father, we recognize that you're sovereign. We recognize that you're the source of all truth, and we recognize, Father, that if anything is good is going to happen today, if it's going to be done right, it is because you've allowed your Holy Spirit to give it to us. I ask that you would allow your Holy Spirit to move in us, that you would represent yourself and your word well. We need your help, Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In everything we do, we are supposed to glorify him. That means to examine God and form an opinion about him. When you form an opinion about God, if you've done it right, you're always, always going to have a good opinion. And then we share that opinion with others. That's what we're designed to do. Now, it seems strange that I would be the one to tell you that because I cannot tell you honestly that I've always been that way. Salvation did not immediately take me to the point where I glorified God in every situation. What it did is it just started a journey. I was seven years old in Hawaii. Sam Gowen preached the message. He asked if anybody would get saved. I went forward. I knelt. I, I started. I prayed the, the sinner's prayer like the pastor told me to. I asked God to forgive me of my sins, and I asked him to come into my heart. I was seven years old. I don't even know if I really understood everything that that meant. But I do know that I started something because I changed. And I can remember they took me out to the ocean, uh, the Pacific Ocean. I was baptized that afternoon. And I remember... Even at seven years old, I went through some kind of change because even I, I was mean and I was a bully, even at seven years old, and I changed. I had no desire to do that again. 
and I had a very strong desire to tell everyone about Jesus. But that does not mean that along the way, and it's been a long time now, I've struggled with God. There have been times that something would go wrong in my life, and I would think something about God, and I go, oh, wait, I hope he didn't hear that. And you know what? Yeah, he knows. I, I can't hide anything from God. He knows what I'm thinking. And so I got to the point where I was, okay, God, I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah, I do feel like that. And I don't understand, and I'm struggling right now. And so over time, that has changed. Over time, the sins that I've struggled with in my youth, they've lost their power. I need to talk to God every morning, and it used to be just a chore that I would check off my list. I would get done praying and say, okay, that's done. It's not that way anymore. I want to talk to God. I enjoy. There's things I need to talk to him about every day. Let me give you an example of where I've struggled with God. There have been times that I have really wanted something from God, and I'll pray, and I'll pray, and I'll pray, and God's not answering my prayers. And I'll go, and I'll, I'll hold up the Bible, and I'll say, listen, didn't you say, seek, ask, knock? Hey, I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking. Does your word work? And I'd go through a time, and then I'd realize, hey, wait a minute. You know what is keeping God from answering my prayers? I had unforgiveness in my heart. I was mad at somebody, and I hadn't forgiven them. And I would get that right. And usually it was something stupid. I can't even remember what they did that made me mad or irritated me. But get past that, and all of a sudden it was like the cork came out of the bottle. All of a sudden here comes the answer to prayers I've been waiting on. It wasn't God's fault. The blame was on me. And it's been like that in I don't know how many situations. I don't have to keep giving example after example because I think everybody has their own list, their own struggles with God. Your list is probably different than my list. I can tell you, though, that things have changed. And one of the things that I think that I'm headed for is Psalm 131.2 when it says, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I've composed and quieted my soul, and like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. That's what I want. I want to stop fretting and worrying and arguing and struggling with God. I just want to get to the point, and I'm getting there. Not there yet, but I want to get there where it's just, okay, God, you got this. I don't need to worry about it. And I know you're right in every situation, no matter what I feel or what I think. One of the things that I do do is when something goes wrong and I'm struggling with God, is I go to the scriptures. I personally like the Psalms because in the Psalms I find a lot of verses that I relate to. There's people in there struggling too. One of the things that I've learned, and sometimes this has been hard, is that if I'm feeling or thinking something and I come to the Word of God and it contradicts or it doesn't match up, with what I feel or think. He's right, and I'm wrong. Sometimes that's hard. There have been times in my life, I'll look at, for instance, Romans 5, for the love of God, and then he gives proof that he loves me. I don't feel love. 
It doesn't seem like right now with what I'm going through, it feels like love. But the Bible says he loves me. God's word is true, and what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking is wrong. We have to get there. Can I show you one verse? Now, one of the things that's happening to me is that list of verses, and a lot of times when I go through verses and I'm looking at the Bible, they turn into wrestling matches. Sometimes I understand it, sometimes I don't. And I'll ask God, would you please explain this to me? Or sometimes I'll look at a verse and, hey, that's for me. That applies to what I'm, and it feels like it's just bouncing off me. I can't get it in me. I can't get it to that point where, oh, yeah, it's working for me. And sometimes there's a wrestling match going on, okay? But that list of where that's happening, as I'm getting older, that list is getting shorter, okay? And I know that the day is coming when those answers in a day of rest will all be answered. Can I give you an example of one verse, though, that I cannot solve my own, and I need your help to solve me with this verse, okay? Would you turn to John chapter 14? And I'm going to take advantage of this situation and get your help with me something. Because I have never seen this verse work the way I think it should. This is an example where the Word of God and me are having a wrestling match. Now, God has shown me over and over again that he's right, I'm wrong, and his Word of God works. Okay? I'm there. This one, I haven't got figured out yet, though, and I want to show you. John chapter 14. Look at verse 13. It says, whatever you ask in my name, look what he says. Now, I'm reading from New American Standard, so it, and this is what it says. That I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, what's going on here in these next few chapters is Jesus is leaving the disciples. He's going to die, and he's going to go home to be with the Father. And he's trying to get his disciples ready. And one of the things that he says here is that, you are going to do more works than me. Now, that is an incredible statement. But that's what he says. He says, you are going to do more works than I am, greater works. How are you going to do that? John 15, verse 7. Can you find it? John 15, 7. He says something. He repeats something. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Go over to the next book, chapter, I mean, chapter 16, verses 23 and 24. <clears throat> In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, he's emphasizing something. I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Then he repeats it again. Until now you have asked for nothing. In my name, ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be full. Now listen. I will do it. It will be done for you. He will give it to you. Ask, and you will receive. He says it four times. You want to do greater works for the kingdom? This is how you do it. Now, if Jesus says something four times, it's something, listen, it's something important going on here. Now, he's talking to Christians. He's telling you you can do great things if you pray. Now, listen, I have prayed for things that I think match the work of the kingdom. 
There are things that I want. He's not talking to people here that are looking for a million dollars to be rich and, and all that. He's talking about Christians who want to do the work of the kingdom because they love God. Okay, So that's who he's talking to. Now, if you're that person, there are things that I want for the kingdom. Can I give you an example that I want really, really bad? And I've prayed for it for decades, and I've never gotten it. I have kids, children, who I want to be saved. I'm ready to go home, guys. I'm old. I know what David's talking about when he says to be full of days. But before I go, I want to see my kids saved. Now, when it comes to this church, do you want something more here than what we have right now? This is it right here. So how come, and here's my struggle, how come I ask in that verse, those verses don't work? Explain it to me. It's a struggle. It's a wrestling match for me. Can I tell you a key that opens up that verse? You see that you there? If you will pray, it's not you. It's y'all. It's you all. It's plural. It means that there's things I can't do by myself. It means there's things that you cannot do by yourself. There are things that can only be done if we do it together. This is a promise. It is a flat-out promise. Is God a liar? Is God true? When he says that he'll do it, will he do it? He'll do it if you all will come together, love each other, agree to pray for something. He says, then I will give you what you ask for. I would love for you guys to help me figure that verse out and see it done. I can't do it myself. I need your help. I don't know about you, but there are times I walk around and I feel like I've got a debit card and I go up to pay for something and it goes, declined, and yet I know there's a million dollars in the bank. Do you realize that when Jesus left, what he's doing there is he's handing not an individual, but he's handing the church the checkbook. Draw on this, it's an unlimited account. We're not drawing on what God has given us because we have not come together, agreed to love each other and pray for the things of the kingdom. I'd love to see that verse work. I don't think I'm the only one that has ever struggled with God, though. You know, I talk to some people about this. Some people identify with me, some don't. Some of you are already there. You don't have a problem. You never get mad at God. That's great. But I have this feeling I'm not the only one. The Bible talks about people who have struggled with God. Abraham, uh, Jesus and his crew are about ready to go down and wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. What does he say? Now, very carefully, he walks up to him and he says, will not the judge of the earth do right? What is he doing? He's questioning God and what he's about to do. The Psalms, go through the Psalms. It's everywhere. Okay, uh, why don't you answer my prayers? On and on. I will pour out my complaint. The, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Phrases over and over again. The psalmist, they're full of people who are struggling with God. Moses argued with God in Numbers. He says, if you slay this people, and God was so mad at Israel, he wanted to take them out. And this man fasts for 40 days, and then 
he fasts for another 40 days. I don't even know how you do it the first time. And what was his point that he made to God? When he argued with God, he says, if you do this, what's the world going to think about you? They're going to say, you could not take care of your people. He is worried about the reputation of God. And so he argues with God. Now, I want you to turn to Job because this one fascinates me. And there's some things that are really important here before we go on. Job chapter 1. I want you to notice that the man who is about to struggle with God, look what it says about this man in verse 1. Job chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read it to you. It says, That man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. This is a good man. He's the most righteous man on earth right at that time. He is a very good man, highly favored by God. Okay? So, look at verse 21. When things go bad, he loses seven sons, three daughters, loses everything he has, and then he lets God let Satan come along, and he's very ill, very sick, and he's in a lot of pain. In all of that, verses 21 and 22 This is his response when all this came upon him. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Okay, now, with that backdrop, look at chapter 23. Even though he never blamed or cursed God, he did say this. 23... Chapter 23, look at verse 2. It says, Even today my complaint is rebellion. My hand, his hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. He wants to argue with God. God never explains to Job what's going on. He's completely in the dark, and Job wants to know why he's suffering so much. I relate to Job. I respect him from not cursing or blaming God, but at the same time, he's struggling. Now, look at the answer that God gives Job. We don't have time to read it all, but let me just tell you what what God did. He comes along, and repeatedly, he just puts on this display of awesomeness. Job, I'm awesome. Look at what I am, and look what I did. He does not explain to him what he did, and look what Job does. He says, chapter 42, verses 3 through 6, he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. That was an answer that was good enough for Job. He didn't have to know why. He knew that God was awesome enough that he would just be satisfied with what God was going to do. Now, I admire that. And I, too, have come to some certain things where I'm settled with God. Can I give you just a few of them? In my lifetime, I have become settled on the point, first of all, that God is the most important. What God wants is more important than what I want. Sinner, if there's anybody here you don't think God is important, someday you're going to realize he is important. And you're going to wish you had decided it now, not till later. Christian, you need to get to this point. 
of all the things that are important to you. I know you love your family, but listen, Jesus came along and says, I am more important than even the best relationships you have in your life. That doesn't mean you don't love them. That's not what we're saying. But he is the most important, and your relationship with God and what you think about God is the most important thing in your life. There is a second thing. God is absolutely sovereign. This is one of the things that Job figured out. Listen to what he says. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. My faith, personally, I don't ever doubt that God can do it. The only thing that I've ever struggled with is, is, will he do it? Does he care enough for me to do it? But I've never, and I don't doubt, that God can do anything you ask him to do. You need something, God can do anything. There is a third point that I'm settled on, and this is my favorite. Psalm 33.4 says, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his works are done in truth. Or faithfulness, depending on what your translation is. I love this one, because that means that God is easy to defend. God never needs a cover story. He can be open, and he can be honest, and not be afraid of anything. Listen, truth can handle any question. You got a hard question for God? Ask him. Everything he does is true. It's perfect. It's right. Ask him a deep and penetrating question. He'll answer it. And every time, every time you ask that question, when you find the right answer, you're going to find a reason to celebrate God. God is true. Now, if you relate to any of this, you have come to the right place when you come to the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah is God's running to daylight. Does anybody know that book? Vince Lombardi wrote a book that was published in 1963. He came off a week where he beat the 49ers, 49 to nothing. And for that next week, in getting preparation to play the Detroit Lions... He wrote down every day what he was going to do to get ready to play the Lions. Now, he didn't just write down what he was going to do. He said how he was going to do it, and then he started explaining why. I read the book, and I can still remember some of the things. You got into the mind of this legendary coach, and you got to understand how he thought and did what he did. I can still remember some of the decisions he made, and he explains why he did it. It was fun to read. Now listen, Isaiah is just like that. In the book of Isaiah, you're going to meet God in a different way than any other book that I know in the Bible. Because in Job, it was, I'm awesome, I'm great, be satisfied with that. Now Isaiah does that. Over and over again, he's going to say, listen, do you know who you're talking about? You're talking about your creator, the one that did this and this. And my glory is great. Now, he does that, but he does something more in this book. There are going to be some hard, legitimate questions about God. God this time doesn't just display his glory. He lets you in the door of his home. And he lets you see his family, 
and he lets you see him. You let, he lets you see his emotions, and then he explains, this is what's going on. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I feel about it, and this is what's going to happen in the future. Now listen, what is he going to do? What's going to happen? The nations are going to ask questions, where is your God? Why? Because he is going to call for foreign nations, Assyria and Babylon is what we're going to see. They're going to come in and not on their own, but because God told them to. God is in control the whole time. He's going to call them in and he's going to say, destroy these people and capture them. He's going to come in, Assyria will come in, and they will destroy the nation of Israel, the top ten tribes. And then he's going to spread them out through the earth. Where are they? I don't know. Later on, he says, I'm going to call them from the north, the south, the west, the east. And he says, I'm going to bring them home someday. But right now, they're scattered everywhere. God did that. And then Judah is the topic of this one. They don't learn from Assyria. They don't learn. They don't figure it out. And so he calls Babylon this time. A hundred and something years later, he gives them a chance to figure it out. They don't figure it out either. And what they do, they come in and brutally and cruelly, he wipes out Judah. The temple is gone. The Shekinah glory goes back to heaven. His people are killed and captured and taken to Babylon. Now, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. God, what are you doing? That's the question. In the Gentile world of thinking, they're thinking, well, isn't God strong enough to defend his people? What does that say about your God? Another thing is, Paul quotes Isaiah, and this is what he says, the Gentiles blaspheme God because of Israel. Whoa, wait a minute. We're going to see later on Isaiah, he says that Israel was created for my glory. I made them for my praise. That's not what's happening right now. They're blaspheming. They're not glorifying God. They're blaspheming God. What's going on, God? Wait a minute. Another thing, too. God, didn't you make some promises to Israel? Aren't they your covenant people? You said that through Israel, all the nations will be blessed. They're not blessing anybody right now. You promised that a king would come and would rule this world forever on the Davidic throne. The Davidic throne is gone. There's nobody sitting on the throne now. So how, are you going to fulfill that promise? The land, Israel has never, ever received all the land that God promised them. Okay? God, you made some promises. Are you going to fulfill those promises? They're all legitimate questions. So how are you going to handle it, God? How will God react? In this book, we're going to see how he reacts. He opens up his heart and mind. One of the things, and this is a verse that I really like, is in Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah chapter 26. Look where we're headed. We're going to go from gloom and doom. Look where we're headed. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. 
Now, at the start, it's going to be hard to say that. But when we get done, you're going to be able to trust God. And if you keep your mind on him, after you learn and after we see what God is really like, you may start off with a hard question and a, maybe a warped image of God at the start. But when we get done and you see who he really is and you keep your mind on this God, you're going to find perfect peace and you're going to find somebody you can trust. That doom and gloom, it's, it's everywhere. This book will do a 180. It's going to turn into, listen to just a couple examples, because it's everywhere, especially at the last 27 books, it's everywhere. But let me just give you a couple of verses of where we're headed. Instead of cursing God, shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. One more. Isaiah 52, 7 and 10 through 10, I'll just a piece of it. It says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to God, your, says to Zion, your God reigns. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. So it goes from doom and gloom to great salvation and great praise for our God. Let me say one other thing, and we'll finish the introduction here. There is another thing here about this book, the appropriateness of the timing here. Another thing we're going to see here is not just a great God who you're going to get to know and hopefully glorify him, but there is a nation in crisis here. This nation is dying, and we're going to see what kills a good nation. Now, listen, the United States right now is in crisis. We are a great nation. I love this country. I am a patriot. I don't apologize for saying that. I want this country to continue. But listen, this country was founded on Christian principles. In God, we trust Listen, the hope for the United States is not a vaccine. It's not better relation between the relations, and I'm not knocking any of that, but that's not the answer for this country. Politics is not the answer. The answer for this country is a right relationship with God. We're going to see what killed Israel. Now listen, at the start of this, it says that Isaiah had his ministry during four kings. That first king, when that starts off, this, this nation of Israel at that time, Judah, it was a premier power in the world at that time. They had a very strong military. They had lots of money. They had a very good king. And then something happened. Uzziah became proud. Became proud of his accomplishments. And you know what God did to him? God turned him into a leper. And things went south from there. Then they had a horrible king after that. And then the prophet, what he's doing is he's trying to straighten this nation out to try to tell them what it takes to survive. We're going to see that. And we're going to see that that message of what it takes for a nation to survive very much applies to us. Listen, it wasn't a poor military or a weak economy that brought them down. It was their sin and their relationship to God that brought them down. If America is going to be right... We need to learn what happened to Israel can happen to us. It is time for a nation to turn back 
to God. Do you want to understand politics right now? I, I can explain to you politics. Read Psalm 2. Behind everything that you see right now, a lot of it is just a facade. What's really behind it is Psalm 2. The Bible explains it. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. You know what it's talking about? It's talking about that behind everything is a sinful people who want the moral restraints lifted off of them. That's what's behind everything that's going on. We, as Christians and the Holy Spirit, are an interference to the way they want to live their lives. They want to live their lives without God, and we're in their way. Now listen, soon God's going to solve that problem. He's going to give them what they want. We're going to be gone, and God's going to give them their turn. But right now, if you want to understand politics, that's what's going on. It's, all, it's God is behind all of it. Okay, let's actually get into the book. It says, the vision of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. This writing, this book of Isaiah, is a vision. The word is hazan. That which is seen, it comes from the word hazah, which means to see or behold. That means that the prophets... And sometimes these prophets were just called seers because all they were doing is they were seeing something that God showed them. Pictures or objects or something were made to pass through the mind of the prophet. How? I don't know. There's different explanations. Some of, uh, some of the commentators, they talk about the inner eye of the prophet. I have no idea what that means. I think maybe God just gave him a cell phone with a YouTube video. I don't know. But somehow, this is God showing... Isaiah, and so what Isaiah is doing is he's simply writing down what God has showed him. Prophets, there's three different words for prophets. Nabi, the word means to speak forth. It means one who is called to be a spokesman for God. The other one is Roe, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, R-O-E-H. It comes from the Hebrew word meaning to see. The third is Hose, H-O-Z-E-H. It comes from the word meaning to see certain things which would otherwise remain unseen to the natural eye. That's what's the definition of a prophet. It's one of those three different words. Isaiah is the first one. Three times in this book, he is called a prophet. That means he is simply a spokesman for God. Now, that's important. That means that what we've got going on here is God talking to us. He is simply the, sp the spokesman. He is simply the one recording what God has showed him. Let's talk a little bit about Isaiah. He is called the greatest of the prophets, and some call him as great as Moses. There's not a lot of information about him, and I kind of like that. He kind of stays in the background, but we do know a little bit about him. His name is a compound word. It means it's two different words put together, and the word means his name. Isaiah is the Lord is salvation. That means that the Lord is the source of salvation. It's very appropriate. That, he would, uh, that would be his name because that's what this book is. This book, at the end of it, is all about the Lord's salvation. He is the son of, it says right there, Amos or Amots, sometimes A-M-O-T-Z. Now, this is not Amos the prophet. That's not who he's talking about. This man, Amos, was the brother of Amaziah, who was the father of Uzziah. You see that first king? His father and the king are brothers. So that means that Isaiah was a cousin to the king, that first king, okay? That explains why he's uh, apparently he's operating in Jerusalem and he has access to the kings. It's because he's probably royalty himself. He's married to a woman. 
He's called the prophetess, and he has two sons, and I'm not going to try to pronounce their names, but the first one means a remnant will return. The second one means hasten to spoil, hurry to pray. The, that's Okay, I would have shortened their names right off the bat. Mom, are you kidding me? Or, well, actually, God told them to give them those names, but they would have been just Jeb or Neb or something. I don't know. But that's their names. The names were given to invite conversation and draw attention to what God wanted them to know, okay? Both of them refer to things that were about to happen in Israel's history. The first one was to let them know that the ones who would be taken away by the Syrians would one day return. That's what the first name meant. The second name was to say that the enemy was coming and Israel was soon to be plundered, okay? He operated during the time of three other prophets. In the north was Hosea and Jonah. They were in the north, and in the south, he operated with another prophet by the name of Micah. He served during the reign of four kings. During the time, it was from 739 to 686 B.C. Now, that means, if you figure it out, there was also some time into Manasseh. Roughly, his ministry lasted 61 or 62 years. He had a long ministry. Hosea also had one, probably about 60 years in the north. If he had started at the age of 30, and I'm not, I don't know about that for sure, this is guessing, but that means that when Manasseh came along and his ministry ended, he would have been in his 90s. Okay, now think about this. He went for a little bit of time after Hezekiah, the last king, because he records things about Hezekiah. So he must have outlived Hezekiah. And then he records things during the Manasseh reign. So he probably lived, we're guessing, somewhere four to five years, if I've got my numbers right, into Manasseh's reign. So he gets into Manasseh's reign, and this very good prophet is killed by Manasseh. Josephus says clearly that the king was killed by Manasseh. He says Manasseh, I said he does not say it clearly, but this is what he says. I'm sorry. He says he barbarously, did I say that barbarically, barbarously, slew all the righteous men that were among the Hebrews, now would he spare the prophets, for every day Manasseh slew some of them until Jerusalem was overflown with blood. The Talmud says that Manasseh put Isaiah to death, and the rabbi says he condemned him. And listen, when Manasseh put him to death, look at what he said about Isaiah. Moses thy Lord saith, No man shall see me and live. But thou hast said... I saw the Lord upon a throne, high and lifted up. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about Isaiah 6. This is, and I, I love this about Isaiah. There is a verse, and I didn't write it down, but there's a verse later on in Isaiah that it says that the people in Judah were so fed up with Judah. Would you please stop talking about the Holy One? That's what it says. He wore them out. When he went through Isaiah 6, he saw the Lord holy, 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 high and lifted up. Isaiah went around and he wore them out telling everybody about the holy one he just saw. Well, Manasseh is tired of listening to it. He takes him. He takes him down to a, right across from a, we know where it was. It was a fountain of Siloam, right across from where the, the Mount Ophel, O-P-H-E-L, ends. And there's a large mulberry tree there with a terrace of stones around it. This is where they took him and they killed him. And it's probably what uh, 
Hebrews 11.37, it says, And some were sawn asunder. He's probably talking about Isaiah. Now, I want to talk to you a second. I'll finish with this, and then we'll go. I've only got a few minutes left. I want to talk to you about Manasseh. This guy was awful. It's all over. When Manasseh shows up, it's awful. He ruled for 55 years, and he is the worst king of all of them. He was a murderer. He set up Baal worship, Canaanite worship, Molech, and then the, he put the image of Asheroth, and he put it in the temple where the Holy of Holies was. He took these idols to, uh, of these false gods, and he put them in the temple where you're supposed to be worshiping God. He blasphemed God. And then he set up children sacrifices in the Valley of Hinnom. And then he went around and he killed all the prophets, and he was a flat-out murderer. Cold-blooded, cruel. He was as bad as they get. This is the one that killed, Manasseh, uh, that killed Isaiah. Second Kings 21.9 says, Manasseh seduced them, Judah, to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. But listen to this. This is what really impresses me. Second Chronicles 33 says that Manasseh was captured by the Assyrians. They put a hook in his nose and they dragged him to Babylon. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Then he prayed to him. He was moved by his entreaty, talking about God. He heard his supplication, and he brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And then it records all these things that he tried to make right. Now listen to me. There's a couple of things here, and I'll finish with this. If God can forgive Manasseh, he can forgive anybody. This guy was a guy who took his own children and threw them into the fire and sacrificed to Satan and to Satan's demons. It doesn't get any worse than that. He murdered the prophets. He was cruel. He was barbaric. But listen, he repented. And God forgave him. He might have had, we don't know, four or five years left when uh, kings would let him come back and try to make things right. And the people started worshiping God, but they didn't worship in the right way. But he did what he could. If there's anybody here, if there's anybody here, and you think that you have sinned so much and that you're too great a sinner, that God cannot forgive you, if he can forgive Manasseh, he can forgive you. There's one other thing, and this is purely guesswork on my part. I wonder, I wonder about Isaiah. I wonder if he prayed for Manasseh. I wonder if that's the reason. I can't prove it. But I, one of the things I'm going to do when I get to heaven, one of those questions I'm going to ask, I'm going to walk up to Isaiah and says, that guy that killed you, did you pray for him to get saved? I think God answered Isaiah's prayer. That's purely conjecture on my point. But I got a strong suspicion that might have been what happened. We need to be praying for the loss. And I hope that's one of the things that we can agree to, to come together and pray for this church and find God to fulfill. Listen, God is worthy of your trust. Examine him. 
Ask him those questions. You're going to find him true. You're going to find him faithful. You're going to find a reason to praise him.